there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. So the title of my second talk is the same as the one for the first, uh, Prayer, Cooperation with God. But I want to be emphasizing the third phrase in the Lord's Prayer. We talked about, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And now give us this day our daily bread. Now what I didn't say very much about if anything, this morning was the first words, our Father, who art in heaven. And when we use those words, we are putting ourselves in place. We're taking the proper place that we should take in prayer. We do not come to God with any rights. We don't come with any claims against him. We come as this only with the claim of being his children, his helpless, ignorant children who need a father, who need guidance, who need to know what his will and his kingdom involves. And in this third clause that we're thinking about this afternoon, we come asking for the most common and ordinary commodity, bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm sure that you've thought of that phrase as meaning a great deal more than physical food. I take it to mean everything that I need. Every single thing, material, spiritual, physical, whatever, I see in that petition. And so I come as a humble child, a simple child, and I say, Lord, I don't know what I need, but you give it to me, whatever it is today. And whatever you give me, I'll take. Now, it's not too easy to use the analogy nowadays of children who eat whatever you give them. Unfortunately, most modern children are trained not to eat whatever you give them because they're given choices. But I did live for a good many years with jungle Indians, and when I lived with the Colorado Indians, the main staple was something called bala, which was made of green plantains. If you've ever eaten a green banana, or even tried to take a bite out of a green banana, you know it's not very good. Well, green plantains are worse. but you can cook them, and then after they cooked them and mashed them, then they would roll them into a long roll, about that long, and just about the dimensions of a banana, longer. And it was very gummy and heavy, about the heaviest food that I think I've ever eaten. But never in my life did I hear a Colorado child say, I don't want bala, because bala, buddy, was it. 
you might get a piece of fish or a little piece of meat or a wild mushroom or something else, but bala was the main thing. When I lived with the Quechuas and with the Alcas, both tribes that live in the eastern jungle of Ecuador, the staple food was manioc. Now, I think manioc is delicious, and manioc can be cooked in any way that a potato is cooked. It's shaped more or less like a carrot. It can be about that long. It has a brown skin and a white insides, more or less like a potato. But it is very lumpy and stringy, and you can't mash it as well as you can potatoes. Never in my life did I hear a Quechua child or an Alka child say, I don't like manioc, or gang, as it was called in Alka, or uh, Quechua word just gone from me, lumo. Either lumo or gang was it. But they make a good analogy for the way you and I should come to God. We don't come to God saying, I'm going to have Cheerios for breakfast this morning when there are 14 choices. I won't have Cheerios this morning. I'm going to have Frosted Flakes or whatever else. I don't know, blueberries and all sorts of things. I went down the aisle one time. There's a one entire aisle in the, in the supermarket of nothing but cereals. And I took down the names of some of, some of them. I've forgotten most of them now, but Frankensteins and blueberries and I don't know what all. Don't do this to your children. I give you little parentheses here about things that I feel strongly about when it comes to raising children, and I think it's just a terrible thing to give a child so many choices. Just the other day, Lars and I were having dinner with a couple who have two teenage kids, and the wife was complaining because cooking has gotten so complicated because her daughter, who I guess is maybe 14, decides that she won't eat Italian food, and everybody else likes Italian food, so she said, I have to do grilled chicken for her. Well, Lars and I and the man all sort of rolled our eyes, and I said, of course, I'm the one with the big mouth, and I said, well, you know, I never had a choice. And Lars said, neither did I. He grew up in Norway during the war, so he certainly didn't have any choices. And the man, who happened to be German, he rolled his eyes and he said, neither did I. Do we expect that praying, thy kingdom come and thy will be done, is going to present us with a smorgasbord from which we can choose whatever we happen to prefer that day? A child is expectant, ignorant, utterly dependent, and humble. That's what we're supposed to be. And Jesus said, if you don't become like this little child, and I love that scene where he took a little child and set him in the midst. And I sort of imagine that that little child was just learning to stand, perhaps. And I could just imagine Jesus going over and taking him from his mother's arms and just setting him there and maybe holding him so that he doesn't fall over and pointing to this precious little child and saying, this is what you have to be. Look at this little child. Unless you become like this, you'll never make it. You won't get into the kingdom. I pray, thy kingdom come.
I don't know the part that I have to play in God's kingdom. I know certain responsibilities that God has given me, and certainly they are part. And let me say by way of encouragement of all you mothers, I don't believe there is anything else in the kingdom of God that is of more value than the job of motherhood. I cannot imagine that there's anything else that even comes close. If it's motherhood that God has called you to, now if God has not given you motherhood, then obviously God has another place which in God's sight is just as important. But what I'm trying to, uh, to oppose with all the strength that I have is this hideous secular notion that a mother really ought to get out of the house and do something, quote, fulfilling. I mean, that is straight out of the pit. That's not anything to do with the will of God. If God has given you that job to do, then thank God that he has given you the highest, the holiest job, because it is the job that was given to Mary too, isn't it? And because she said, behold the handmaiden of the Lord, let it happen as you say, she is the most highly exalted among women. That's what the Bible calls her. Now again, Connie didn't know what I was talking about this afternoon, and she's saying, if I have you, Lord Jesus, I have enough. Can you sing that without lying? Some of you may be just seething with desire for something that you don't have. In my book, my newest book called A Path Through Suffering, I define suffering as having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. And I think that covers every form of suffering I've ever heard of. <laughs> having what you don't want and wanting what you don't have. But God gives me my daily bread, exactly the thing which is needed, not only to feed my soul, but to enable me to give to the rest of the world what God has put me here to give. And God has put every one of us here to give ourselves. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.15, He died for us so that we, while still in life, might henceforth not live for ourselves. He died so that we would not live for ourselves. As Amy Carmichael says, from that which self in any form inspires, set thou that sign of loss on that which, any, which self in any form inspires. So, point one under this heading of prayer cooperation with God is open hands. The first thing that I have to do in order to receive the daily bread that God has assigned to me is to open my hands and let go of whatever's there. You, if you've ever tried to give a little child something good and he doesn't see it as something good and he's got something else clutched in his sweaty little palm, there's no way you can give it to him until he opens his sweaty little hand and receives it. And that's the way we are, isn't it? Here we are clutching these ridiculous little toys and God is trying to give us something which will last forever.
And we're not ready to take it because we're not ready to let go. And you've got to let go before you can receive his will. And as I tried to tell you this morning, I had to let go of my desire for marriage. God was not saying, I'm never going to give you a husband. He was simply saying, will you surrender to me that desire? It's my business whether I want to fulfill it or not. It's not your business today. Will you let it go? Will you give it to me? I get dozens and dozens, I don't think I'd be exaggerating if I say hundreds of letters from young women telling me they've read my book, Passion and Purity, but, Mrs. Elliot, I've got a problem, and they write me 18 pages to tell me the problem, and I know what it's going to be before I get to the bottom of page one. Will God give me a husband? Can you give me some assurance that if I'm faithful and if I surrender my will to him and if I do this and if I do that, will he give me a husband? Which reminds me of a girl that said to me, if I tell the Lord I'll be a missionary, will he give me a husband? (laughs) Or would it be okay to say, Lord, I'll be a missionary if you'll give me a husband? What would you say to that? Would it be okay? I said, no, it's not okay. Who do we think we are defining the terms of our discipleship? If you have a son who's in the Army or in the Marines or the Navy, he's under orders. He didn't have anything to do with whether he got sent to Saudi Arabia or to the Virgin Islands. He is under somebody else's orders. And he doesn't say, well, I'll go to Saudi Arabia if you'll upgrade me to captain or something. Who do we think we are? We're humble, ignorant, dependent children. And so we must open our hands. And once we have relinquished whatever is in them, then we're prepared to receive whatever it is that God gives us. Now, what are you receiving from God today? You live somewhere. Some of you have a home. Some of you don't really have a house of your own. Maybe you live in one room. Maybe you live in half a room. You share a room with somebody else. But that's where you live. Have you thanked God for your home? Those of you that would like to get a new set of, a new, a whole new carpeting or new appliances or a new car and like to upgrade your lifestyle a little bit, maybe God wants you to do that sometime, but maybe not now. But how about just relinquishing the desire and just saying, Lord, anything you want to give me is fine. Lars and I visited a friend of mine in England who lives in the tiniest apartment I've ever seen in my life, except in England. There are thousands of them just like that over there. She's got a bookcase. She's got bookcases in her hall, which means you have to go down the hall this way. You can't walk straight down the hall because of the bookcases. And when you sit in the living room, you literally sit kneecap to kneecap. She has a chair on this side and a chair on this side. And when you sit in them, your kneecaps are practically touching. And I made it some nasty remark. I'm sure it was nasty about uh, why she didn't get a smaller, a little bit smaller sofa <laughs> so that you'd have a little knee space. And she withered me by saying, This is the sofa the Lord gave me. (laughs) 
your work? Do you love your work? I think one of the reasons children make such a fuss about doing housework is because they know that their parents hate work. And that rubs off. I just had a letter last week from a woman who said she's got four children, she's expecting her fifth, and her the oldest is nine, I think she said, and he complains when she asks him to wash dishes. He wants to know why he has to wash dishes, and so she didn't know the answer. And she wrote to me, she said, I, th I have this feeling that he should help with the housework, but I don't know why, can you give me a reason? <laughs> and of course I did, I gave her quite a few reasons. <laughs> but I cautioned her to make sure that she lets him know that she is thankful for the work that God has given. And I think we need to learn that if you can't do what you like, then you must learn to like what you do. And work is a blessing. It is one of God's greatest gifts. God gave Adam work to do before Adam even fell. The angels in heaven, we know, serve him night and day. His servants, the Bible tells us, shall serve him, and his name shall be in their, in their foreheads. So heaven is not sitting around on a cloud and fiddling away with a harp or something all the time. We're going to be working. God worked for six days and rested for one. So we need to thank God for this daily bread, this task. And I try to remember every morning to thank the Lord for the work that he's given me to do that day, even if it looks overwhelming, even if it looks as though there's no way I can possibly get it done. The most wonderful peace-bringing thought to me is I don't have anything to do but the will of God. That's all I have to do. And there is always strength and always time to do the will of God. There's never going to be time to do everything I'd like to do. There certainly isn't time to do everything everybody else would like me to do. There isn't even time to do all the things I think I ought to do. But God says, this is your daily bread. He hands it to me on a platter, and it's up to me to say, thank you, Lord. So my open hands relinquish and receive. On Thursday, coming out here, we missed our connection in Dallas. Now, that wasn't on my plan. You know, Lars and I prayed that morning before we left the house, Lord, go before us, take us safely to Arizona. And we always know that there are these exigencies and contingencies and all the rest of the things that go along with travel. And so when it happens, and we could see that the minutes were ticking away, and we, as we were landing, we were landing in Dallas just at the minute that our plane was to be leaving. But of course, you can always hope that the plane is going to be late going out. And so Lars gave me instructions while I get the stuff out of the overhead rack, you race off and you talk to the man with the red coat and you tell him to call down to the gate and tell him that we are on our way for the Tucson flight. So I did exactly that and the man was there and I said, the Tucson flight? And he said, looked at his sheet there and he said, gate so-and-so on time. 
And I said, well, that means that it's left then, doesn't it? And he just smiled. <laughs> but he said, you better go to the gate anyway. So I, we ran. It took us about seven minutes running. And of course, there wasn't a solitary human being anywhere to be seen anywhere near the gate, except the one man who was just closing up his stuff. What has this got to do with spiritual matters? Everything. Everything in the world. What is the good of missing a plane? God is the good of it. So what did it mean? We had to get on the phone, we had to call Cynthia Heal, tell her, you can go to bed, you don't need to meet, meet us because we won't be here till tomorrow, won't be there till tomorrow. And it meant, uh, you know, X number of hours of sitting around in boarding lounges again and taking, finding a hotel, getting to the hotel, waiting 20 minutes for the hotel courtesy car, waiting till all the paperwork was done so that we get the vouchers for the hotel and going to bed at 12 o'clock and getting up at 5 o'clock or something in order to get the flight here. And I say, Lord, this is, your, this is my daily bread. What do I learn from this? I don't know all God's reasons why he allows us to miss a plane by a matter of literally five minutes or so. And I don't need to know because he's my father. He's my father. If a man is sitting at a computer and his little three-year-old comes along and says, what are you doing, Daddy? The father really can't explain very much about what he's doing. doesn't matter. The child doesn't need to know. There are some things that I do believe I know about why God allows things like this. And one of them is the answer to a prayer that I pray nearly every morning, the Orthodox morning prayer, which includes this phrase, Teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all. Teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all. I pray that prayer, I get the answer in a missed connection. I said this morning, that God takes these unexpected things and forges from them the fruits of the Spirit in me. A missed connection is God's raw material to produce in me the fruit of patience, meekness, and self-control, instead of getting all up in the air about something like that. It's a very small thing, isn't it? I mean, it's such a ridiculously small thing. But how ridiculously upset we get about tiny little inconveniences. They are blessed inconveniences. They are God's inconveniences. Amy Carmichael missed a boat with fellow missionaries in Japan. It didn't mean an overnight in a comfortable hotel. It meant seven days of waiting in a very, very uncomfortable and inhospitable place. And she, as a brand new missionary, was just all uptight about this, and here was the Lord's work going down the drain, and the only reason they were going to this place was to do service for the Lord, and why would the Lord allow this to happen? And her senior missionary just said very calmly, the Lord knows all about the boats. And that became one of her bywords for the rest of her life. And when people in the Donovor family would get all upset about small inconveniences, she'd just say, the Lord knows all about the boats. Keep that in mind, will you? 
I say, Lord, take us to, to when, when we saw that the plane was probably going to be late getting into Dallas, of course I prayed, Lord, please let us make the connection. And the Lord says, no, not that, this. For my glory, he's saying, for your sake, for who knows how many other reasons. And wouldn't you be thrilled if I could tell you that the plane we did get on, we had an opportunity to witness to ten people, and we brought them all to the Lord. <laughs> and then you'd know that God knew what he was doing, wouldn't you? But if that doesn't happen, you're not really sure. Now, to bring it up to a much more serious matter, when Jim was going into Alka territory, I knew that these were people who killed strangers. Nobody had ever come out of there alive. People looking for oil and rubber and gold were never heard from again. But there were five American missionaries who, in 1956, felt that it was God's time for somebody to try to take the gospel to these people, and they believed that they were that somebody. It was a case of volunteering. You know, you don't always have to have a call. How many of you talk about getting a call to the grocery store? You don't worry about whether God has called you to go to the grocery store. If you need food, you go to the grocery store. And if people have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Jesus said, go into all the world and take the gospel to every people and tribe and tongue and nation, then when the opportunity comes, you go. And so, of course, when Jim and Ed and Nate and Pete and Raj went into Alka territory, all of us wives prayed. For what? Physical safety. And the men pray prayed in the words of that great hymn that they sang on their last evening before they went in there, we rest on thee, our shield and our defender. They trusted God to be their shield and their defender. And a week later they were all speared to death. Give us this day, our daily bread. On January the 8th, 1956, God gave me the gift of widowhood. Now, who would ask for that? This man that I had waited five and a half years for, to whom I had been married 27 months, the Lord said, this is what you've asked for, my will. Now, I know that strikes terror into the hearts of some of you. I have had girls come up to me and say, but what if God does to me what he did to you? <laughs> I said, well, what did God do to me? His faithfulness reaches to the clouds. His faithfulness is great. It never never fails. There hath not failed one word of all his good promises. But he has had to take me through deep waters and hot fires. He says, trust me. So I opened my hands. Once again, I had to relinquish Jim. First, I had to relinquish my desire for Jim. Then God gave me Jim. Then once again I had to relinquish and say, Lord, it wasn't widowhood that I had in mind, but if that's what you want to give me, I'll take it. And I will glorify you as a single woman once again. And of course, when number two 
came along 13 years later. I could not imagine that God wanted me to marry a third man. I expected that someday I'd probably be widowed again, since he was 18 years older than I, but I didn't expect it to be so soon. And once again, God gave me the glorious gift of marriage and a second time the gift of widowhood. This brings me to the second thing you can put down, put down on your notes. In terms of the kingdom of heaven, I offer myself. If you could just put down, I offer myself. I open my hands to receive, and I offer myself as a co-worker, a cooperator with God. It's not a matter of receiving things from God. All these beautiful gifts that he gives us, there's always the danger that Connie sang about, that those treasures will rule my heart. And so I see prayer as a solemn and high privilege to cooperate with him at any cost for the sake of the world. When Paul was in chains in prison, he said, it is my happiness to suffer for you, for this is my way of helping to fulfill in my poor human flesh the full quota of Christ's sufferings for the sake of the world. Now, I don't, my share of suffering has not been anything like the Apostle Paul's. He had what looks to me like the lion's share of suffering in Christ. And I believe every kind of suffering can be surrendered to that quota that we're talking about. And I can't begin to go into all that I mean by this. If you are puzzled by it, I would say you need to read my book, A Path Through Suffering. I've tried to get at it there and also in the book called Loneliness. But each of us is, is given the privilege of a little share in the sufferings of Christ. Paul said, my ambition is to know him, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. We'd all love to know him. We'd all love to have the power of the resurrection. We would not all love to share in his sufferings. But the three things are inextricable, inseparable. So, Lord, I will have whatever bread that you want to give me. And this is the human, practical, everyday working out of my prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. I'm asking now that God will give me my daily bread, whatever my tiniest, most hidden, most unrecognized, most unappreciated share may be, in the outworking of his will, his kingdom, for the sake of the world, I will take it. And I think of, again, Amy Carmichael, I keep quoting her again and again and again. Uh, she would have loved to be married, too, and she would love to have had children of her own. Instead of that, God kept her single and made her the mother of hundreds of Indian children. And she wrote this, If thy dear home be fuller, Lord, because a little emptier, my house on earth. What rich reward.
thousands upon thousands have been blessed by Amy Carmichael's receiving her share, which was singleness. She feared desolation and loneliness, and she went into a cave one day to wrestle with God over this fear. And the answer he gave her was, none of them that trust in me shall be desolate. And so she not only received the gift of singleness, she offered it back and said, Lord, do anything you want with this, little imagining that God was going to make her the Amma, the Tamil word for mother, to thousands of Indian children. The family in Donavur, South India, numbered about 900 at its peak. And of course, she, over the 50 years, 53 years that she served, she had many, many, many hundreds come and go. There were about 200 workers and 700 children at one time. So I will receive, Lord, whatever you want to give to me. And that's why I called my talks today Cooperation with God. In order to pray at all, I have to have some idea of my relationship to him and some beginning inkling that anything I ask may cost me something and that everything I ask, if I expect God to hear me and to do something about it, ought to be prefaced with these words, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. In 2 Timothy 2.4, we have the verse that Jim Elliott wrote in my yearbook back when I was a student, underneath his autograph. We tried to get the autographs of our friends in the yearbook, and when I tremblingly offered my yearbook to Jim, hoping that he would write something besides his name. This was before I had knew he had any interest in me. He wrote his name, and he wrote 2 Timothy 2.4. He also wrote a few words from Amy Carmichael, which thrilled me to death. I didn't know he knew her. But I had to race to the dormitory to get my Bible and look up 2 Timothy 2.4, and this is what I found. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. <laughs> he must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. The soldier is disposable. Those five men were expendable. And we had to remember that, we wives, we widows. There was nothing surprising, really. Shocking, yes, because we don't think things are ever going to happen to us. It's always somebody else. But when we thought about it, we thought, so what else is new? Thousands upon thousands have been killed in obedience to God. Think of John the Baptist, had his head chopped off. Think of Stephen, stoned to death. Think of that list of heroes in Hebrews 11. Some who did great exploits and stopped the mouths of lions and quenched the violence of fire and overcame their enemies and made the walls fall down, but also the ones whose names are not given, who were sawn in two. 
you know that was in there? Tortured, killed. These all died in faith, it says, not having received the promise, God having prepared some better thing for us. Now, I don't want to leave you with the idea that everything God is up to is going to be painful and sacrificial and it's going to cost you burning and drowning and all the rest of it. That's not the end of the story. Let's never forget that he is not finished with us. And God has surprises up his sleeve that are so unbelievably wonderful that I think he couldn't give us more hints than he's given, and he's given us a lot of hints. But if he'd given us any more, do you think we could have kept our minds on our work? You know, it'd be like showing your children the packages, the Christmas packages, and then putting them up in the top of the closet where they can't reach them and saying, there, there they are, and every day making them go and look at them. You know, it, the poor children wouldn't be able to keep their minds on much of anything. I mean, it's a few days before Christmas is one thing, but you don't just constantly remind them of something they can't yet have. And that's the way God is with us, I think. He gives everlasting love. The Bible says you are loved with an everlasting love. And it also says that underneath are the everlasting arms. He has never asked us to do anything outside of the sphere of that kind of protection. As the mountains are round about Tucson, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, the Bible says, so the Lord is round about them that fear him. And his tender mercies are over all his works. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Is that a, fa a safe place to be? I was talking with a young man who has been twice divorced, trying to get at what he thought he was getting by getting rid of one wife and living life in the fast lane with many women, and then getting himself a second wife whom he unloaded within about six months. This is a Christian young man, son of missionaries, and he kept saying to me, but Aunt Betty, it wasn't working. It just wasn't working. And I was so lonely, and I, I needed to be happy. Well, I said, where do you expect to find happiness if not in the will of God? And I've, said to, I've had to say this to so many young people who've come to me, with their problems. They want to do this thing. This is something they really think they ought to do. They really, really want to do this, and it wouldn't be me if I don't do this. And I say, but it's wrong. Yes, but I want to be happy. Well, there isn't any happiness outside of the will of God. And I am here to testify, as millions can testify, and have testified through the ages taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Blessed means happy. 
And one of my life verses is Psalm 119.14. I have found more joy along the path of thy commandments than in any kind of wealth. Everlasting love, joy unspeakable and full of glory, and peace that passes understanding. Now, I don't know anybody in the world that's looking for anything more than love, joy, and peace. That covers it, doesn't it? The trouble is most of them are looking in the wrong places. They're looking for love in everybody's bed, and they can't find it anywhere. And they're looking for joy where the world tells them they can find happiness and fun, fun, fun. Just got to be fun, right? And it's not there. And as for peace, most people don't have any idea what the word peace means except the absence of war. They're praying for peace. And suppose we were to win the war in the Gulf tomorrow. Does that mean we'd have peace? We might have the absence of war. But how many people do you know who have peace in their lives? There's an old hymn that says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Prayer is offering myself as a cooperator with God. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, as Paul says in Romans, the eighth chapter. Let me read it for you. The Spirit comes to the aid of our weakness. We do not even know how we ought to pray. And if Paul said that, how much less do you and I know? We do not know how to pray, but through our inarticulate groans, the Spirit himself is pleading for us. And God, who searches our inmost being, knows what the Spirit means because he pleads for God's people in God's own way. And that is the verse that precedes the one that you all know so well, verse 28, and in everything, as we know, he cooperates for good. He cooperates for good with those who love God. If we cooperate with him in this mysterious business of prayer, he cooperates for good in everything with those who love God. Everything that happens, as Philip's translation says, fits into a pattern for good. And what's the purpose of all those things? Because it says that, he might, that we might be shaped. His purpose is that we might be shaped to the likeness of his Son. If we're going to celebrate in the Son, we've got to be shaped into his likeness. And to shape a statue means a, a hammer and a chisel and a file, doesn't it? Three aspects of prayer that we're talking about this afternoon under the heading, give us this day our daily bread. Receiving, thanking him for what we've received, even if it's widowhood, even if it's a misplane, even if it's a miserable marriage, receive it, because it is here 
in this place, on this platter that God is handing to you, that he wants to work out his kingdom and his will. And then you say, thank you, and you offer it, receiving thanksgiving and offering. And I would like to close with the words of the prayer of St. Francis, which I'm sure many of you know. Let there be no clapping at the end of this, please. If you bow your heads in prayer with me, I will read this slowly. And if you can make this your honest prayer, do so silently. If you can't, please don't. I love this prayer because it sums up what I think cooperation in by prayer means. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today, and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.